on the message you have for us in it. We thank you for your character, that you are our rock, our redeemer, that you sustain us, that when our enemies attack us, you are a shield, that because of our sin, God, you graciously saved us, and that we can trust in you. So God, may we trust in you this morning. And as we think about how do we handle persecution, how do we handle opposition, how do we handle our enemies, Lord, um, would you just sustain us and help us to um, understand this passage well, to apply it to our lives. Be with me as I preach. Give me the strength and the um, wisdom that I need to help clearly communicate this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1374, John Huss was born to a humble family in Czech. He was an ordained priest in 1401, and he eventually began to lay the framework for the Reformation. He, along with John Wycliffe, stressed the Bible as the ultimate authority for the church. He was very critical of the Roman Catholic Pope, and he gained massive popularity throughout his lifetime. He preached against the sales of indulgences, which was the Catholic belief that you could buy grace and give money to the church in order to have more merit to your account. And he was excommunicated by the Pope. In 1415, he was summoned to the Council of Constance to defend his teachings. He was promised a safe passage and a safe trial that nothing would happen to him. But when he got there, he was arrested. And he was condemned to death for his teaching. His last words as he was being burned at the stake were, God is my witness that the evidence against me is false. I have never thought nor preached except with one intention of winning men, if possible, from their sins. Today, I will gladly die. Those who were there said, his last moments, he was singing the Christian chant, Christ, thou Son of the living God, have mercy upon me. John Huss gladly endured persecution and trial and opposition to what he knew was true. In Matthew ten seventeen, Christ says that persecution is going to happen to Christians. He says, beware of men. For they will deliver you over to their courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings before my sake and witness to them. He later on says this as an encouragement to his disciples. He says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now this type of persecution is honestly hard for us to imagine today in America. There are Christians all around the world who are persecuted in ways like this. But in the American church, it's hard for us to imagine having to die for our faith, having our life on the line for being a Christian. In the future, we don't know what God has for us. We've seen the church persecuted time and time again. We've seen Christians face struggles from outside of the church. And so this could be part of God's plan for the church. 
is persecution even in America. But yet we still face opposition in America, don't we? We still face a government opposed to Christian values. We still face school systems that have taken the Bible, have taken prayer out of school. A culture that is radically secularized and all Christian morals and teaching are slowly being removed from culture. We do face opposition. And I think it's important for us to see in our text how the early church responded to their opposition. This is about the earliest accounts of opposition to the church that we're going to see in the book of Acts. You see, it's a test. So far in Acts, everything has gone pretty well, pretty smoothly. But this was the test. Would they waver under persecution? Would they renounce the gospel? Or would they hold fast to the faith? We're going to see as we study Acts that there's going to be attacks outside of the church that threaten its existence. And then attacks inside of the church. Fighting, drama, different things going on inside of the church that also threaten its existence. And Luke's going to show us these in a back and forth type of manner. But through it all, the encouragement is to remain faithful to the gospel. And if there's one thing I could show us, have us focus on in this text, it's this. That we should remain faithful to the gospel in the face of opposition. We're going to look at this story this morning in four different movements and then make some application to the end on how does this affect us as Christians. So notice with me, first of all, the arrest. The arrest in verses 1 through 4. It says in verse 1, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. That word came upon them is interesting. It literally means like they came on top of them. You know, they're right in their face. They're coming down on them. Now there's three different types of people mentioned. There's the priests. There were 24 groups of priests. So it was whatever priests were at the temple that day. There's a captain of the temple who was usually a member of the high priest's family. And he was in charge of um, security in the temple. He was also responsible to Rome to make sure there were no messianic imposters, that no one was going around claiming to be the Messiah. And then there's lastly the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a group of um, religious aristocrats, if I can say that word, aristocrats. They were um, pretty wealthy people, lay people, who uh, we see were important and were um, in power during the time of Jesus as well. They thought they went back to Zadok, who was the high priest during the time of Solomon. And so all three of these groups came, and they literally descended on Peter and John. And notice what verse 2 says. It says, greatly annoyed. They were perturbed. They were frustrated. They were upset at what was going on. Why? Because they were teaching people, because Peter and John were teaching people that Jesus had risen from the dead. They were claiming resurrection from the dead. 
Now, the Sadducees rejected miracles, and they rejected the idea of a future resurrection of the dead. So they were especially upset at what Peter and John were doing. The captain of the temple guard, like I said, was in charge of making sure there were no messianic imposters. So he especially would want to make sure this was weeded out and that this didn't get very serious. And the priests, specifically the high priests, they were the ones that put Christ to death. So they also had an interest in making sure this movement stopped and didn't go any further. They all had different reasons to oppose the preaching of the gospel. And so we see in verse 3 that they arrested them. It says, and they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day. Now that word custody simply means that they were holding them, holding them overnight. Now you might ask, why did they hold them overnight? Because it had gotten pretty late in the day. And they couldn't gather the Sanhedrin to have this trial until the next day. Some people think they're trying to scare them or keep them overnight in jail to try to intimidate them. I simply think it was late in the day and they couldn't gather everyone until the next day. So even though they were arrested, this isn't quite as rough and coarse treatment as you might think later when Paul is arrested and other disciples are. So they're kept overnight in custody until they can have this meeting. But look at verse 4. This is what I find very interesting in our passage. But many of those who had heard the word believed. Even though they're arrested, even though the temple is clearly upset at what is going on, those who heard the gospel believed. Many of them believed what Peter and John we're saying there's a response to this message and notice what it says and it says the number came to the number of men came to about 5000 now i don't think 5000 men were saved here but rather the overall number of the church grew to about 5000 men we saw in acts 2 that it was about 3000 men who were saved after pentecost and so now it's grown about 5000 men in this event So it's fascinating that while the messengers are arrested, while the messengers are taken into custody, God's word still is powerful. God's word is still acting. And even though there would be those who would oppose the gospel, they could not stop the power of the gospel, even by taking the messengers to prison. We secondly see the defense The defense in verses 5 through 12. We approach verse 5 now. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. This was the Sanhedrin, the governing body of the Jews. And it was made up of different groups. Elders who were like lay leaders in Jerusalem, usually older men who were wise, who could make decisions. Scribes who were professional scribes, scholars in the temple. And they gathered together for the Sanhedrin. And notice in verse 6, there are some specific men who are mentioned. With Annas, the high priest. 
Now, he actually wasn't the high priest at this time. He had been the high priest. And then his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's the next person mentioned, he became the high priest. But Annas was the most well-known and the most prominent in the group. And so he was still called the high priest after his term was up. And his name carried the most weight in the temple. So that's why they call him Annas, the high priest there. Caiaphas is the high priest who presided over the trial and execution of Jesus. So that should ring a bell if you've read the gospel passages at all. And then John and Alexander, we don't know too much about them. These might have been sons of Annas. Um, John may have been the next high priest after Caiaphas, but we're not quite sure. All of these men played a part in the trial of Jesus. And now they're trying Peter and John, and they're over the Sanhedrin body. Look at verse 7. And when they had set them in their midst, so imagine like a semicircle around Peter and John, they inquired, and notice what question they ask. By what power or in what name did you do this? They're actually not focusing on the name of Jesus yet, even though they might have heard rumors about it. There are other people who tried to do healings and miracles and tried to preach in different names, maybe names of other gods, maybe in other powers that weren't even Christian necessarily. But they're asking, in what name or in what power have you done this? And one thing we'll see as we look at this miracle is that it's very clear that this man was healed. There was no denying that this man had been lame. He couldn't walk for his entire life and that he was now not just walking, but as we saw last week, he is leaping around. He's jumping around. And so they could not deny that this man had been healed, but they want to know what power and what name, how is this done? In verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means he has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him, this man standing before you, is well. It says Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. One commentator says it well, that this has less to do with Peter's sanctification, but more to do with the fact that he's going to speak the words of the Lord. So I'm not saying Peter wasn't holy or sanctified at this moment, but the fact that he was filled with the Spirit means that what he's saying comes directly from God. That this is the message of God that he has for these people. It's much like when you would write the Bible, when the New Testament writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're giving the message of God. We see here that he calls them rulers and elders. He's very polite. He doesn't try to be argumentative. He doesn't try to insult them. 
but he recognizes them as authority. We're going to talk about that later, that Peter actually is respecting those who are in power. And he says, if we're being examined here today, you guys are examining us for this work that we've done to a crippled man by what means he has been healed. And Peter says, I'm going to tell you in what power or in what name this work is done in. It's done in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He proclaims the name of Christ. He shows that he's the Christ, that he's the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, but that he's from Nazareth. Now, what's important about Nazareth? It was a very lowly town. It was a humble background that Christ had. Notice also in verse 10 that he says, whom you crucified. He again puts it back on them. You're the ones who killed him. You're the ones who crucified him. And he's literally standing before the three people who probably had the most to do with that event. He says, you guys killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Death could not hold him. He was not bound by the power of death. He was raised from the dead by God. And it's because of that that this man who is there, by the way, in front of them, it's because of that power that he is standing before them and that he is healed. And then Peter does something interesting in verse 11. He uses an Old Testament quotation. Look at verse 11 with me. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He quotes Psalm 118. He quotes Psalm 118 to point out that Christ was rejected by his people. He was rejected by his people, but yet he would become the cornerstone, the most prominent stone. The cornerstone is part of the foundation. The entire building rests on it. Peter's going to use this again in 1 Peter 2. In fact, turn there with me for just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2. The book of 1 Peter is a wonderful little book. It really shows, in my opinion, the development of Peter as an apostle, as a man of God. Chapter 1 starts with this beautiful explanation of the gospel, of the blessed hope that we have in Jesus Christ, of our great salvation. And then it calls us to be holy and set apart because we are Christians. Chapter 2 continues to develop our identity in Christ, and it shows us how we are connected to him. Look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, so there's that idea again that Christ is this living stone, rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. This stone is a precious rock, a chosen rock. Whenever I hear of this um, being preached in First Peter and Acts, I always think of my brother who likes to skip rocks. And he'll spend a ton of time just looking at different stones by the lake 
and trying to find one that's just going to skip really, really well, you know, even more so than that silly illustration, Christ is the precious stone of God. And then notice what it says about us. You yourselves, like living stones, so he calls us stones as well, are being built up into a spiritual house. Christ is the foundation. He's the cornerstone. We are all built on Christ to be this building. Now, Paul talks about this in Ephesians. Christ is the foundation of the church, right? The church rests on Christ. And we are all the stones that make up the building of the church. And then he quotes in Isaiah in verse 6. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. God has chosen Jesus to be this cornerstone, this precious stone that the church is built on. Notice what it says after that. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You should choose Jesus. You should accept this stone from God. This isn't what the Jews are doing at this point. They've rejected the gospel. They've rejected Christ. Verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, so you can accept this stone, this cornerstone, Christ, or you can reject it, And he says, those who don't believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A rock, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter quotes again Old Testament passages, making this argument from the Old Testament that Christ is a stone rejected by men. But it's better to be rejected by men because he is this holy and precious stone. And he makes this point that we are united with Christ, that we have this connection to Christ because we're going to be rejected as well because people will not choose us. And the same people who rejected Jesus will also reject us. We saw that earlier in the passage in Matthew. So how does this come back to Acts chapter 4? It shows us that Christ was rejected, he was opposed. We are rejected as well by people and we are opposed. And that's really the theme of 1 Peter. That identity in Christ, knowing Christ, comes with this rejection and this opposition that you're going to face from other people. So it's interesting to see Peter use that now as he's giving this speech and then how he'll write about it later And how he'll call Christians in the early church to suffer in the flesh just like Christ has. Back in Acts 4 now, he reminds us of Christ being this cornerstone. That Christ is this precious stone that was rejected. And then in verse 12, he brings his argument to a point in sharing the gospel. He says, and there is salvation in no one. In heaven, given among men, by which we by which we must be saved. There is no other name. There is no other power. Remember, they're asking, "What name did you do this in? What power did you perform this miracle in?" And Peter's saying, "There's no other name. There's no other power by which we could do this, 
other than the name of Jesus. Salvation is exclusively through Jesus Christ. And remember, he's saying this to the Jewish people. He's saying this to people who rejected Christ, who did not accept him as the Messiah. And now he's boldly saying, Christ is the one who you've been waiting for. Now, the gospel would later come to the Gentiles. Yes, in the book of Acts. But this is just for the Jews. Think with me for a moment about what this means for Peter. A person who was often clumsy in the Gospels, who would say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then tell Jesus, surely you're not going to die on the cross. Who told Jesus, I'll be with you to the end, I'll die with you. And then he denied Jesus three times. Think about the boldness that we see from Peter. And even the development of how God works in his life. Notice with me in verse 13 now. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. These men were bold. They had a confidence about them. They were outspoken. Now be careful as you read about them being common and uneducated that you don't think they were illiterate. They could read They were smart. That's not what Luke is saying. What Luke is saying is that they didn't have formal training. They didn't have rabbinical training. They didn't have religious training. It'd be like if you had a pastor come speak to you from the pulpit and you'd never been to Bible college or seminary or something like that. They had no formal training in how to study the scriptures. Yet if you've noticed, this is the third speech we see from Peter. Peter knows his Bible very well, doesn't he? He knows especially the Old Testament extremely well, and he uses it to point to Christ being the Messiah. And if you ever read 1 Peter and the language he uses, it's one of the hardest books in Greek to translate. And you think, how is this guy a fisherman? How is he just a fisherman? He's so complex in how he writes. Notice also they recognized... That they had been with Jesus. They'd seen these men with Jesus. They knew they were his followers. So this is all the things that they have against them. They're boldly proclaiming the gospel. They've been seen with Jesus. But then also, notice verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. You know what I think is interesting? In chapter 3... It said this man clung on to Peter and John. Apparently he didn't let go because he's still there with them the next day in chapter 4. He's still like right beside them. And he's still saying, yeah, I was lame and then these men healed me. They could not deny this miracle. So they call Peter and John away. They call them out and then the council deliberates. And now the Sanhedrin are faced with a pretty impossible task. Because this man had been healed, and they couldn't condemn that. But the people who healed him are preaching the gospel, which they've already rejected. So what are they going to do? Notice in verse 15, but when they had had commanded them to leave the council, 
they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them that is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further from among the people, let us warn them not to speak no more, or let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So this is really where they're at. They know this miracle has been done, but they've got to stop this proclamation of the gospel. So notice in their response, they say very little about the miracle. They say very little about the man being healed. And they don't tell them, hey, don't go heal anyone else, because that would give them a bad image and public perception. But what do they tell them? They say, you cannot preach the gospel anymore. You cannot preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They could not deny the fact that they had performed a miracle, but they could at least try to stop them from preaching the gospel. And this is where our story comes to a head. What would the disciples do? Now they are officially getting governmental interference. The government is stepping in. Some might say overstepping their bounds. And they're saying, you cannot preach the gospel. You cannot teach in the name of Jesus. We see the answer to the problem for the Pharisees becomes a problem for Peter and John. So how would they respond? Notice in verse 19. But when Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. What do Peter and John say? We don't know whether or not for you guys it's right for us to just listen to you or if we should listen to God. He puts them in direct opposition to God. And why is that? Because it's the gospel of God. It's God's gospel. It's his plan. And Peter's shown this, that it's been planned out in the Old Testament. And that it's now being accomplished in the New Testament. So Peter's saying, yeah, we can listen to you. But do you want us to disobey God? Who's the one who's told us to do this? Look at verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're saying we have seen this, we've heard this, and they're not talking about the miracle. They're not just talking about this man being healed, but what they are what are they talking about? Turn to first John one. First John one, we studied this book together. About almost a year ago now is when we finished it. In 1 John 1, John says something very similar. He says, That which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon with, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and made manifest to us. Who is this word? Who is this word of life? It's Jesus. And this is John writing at the end of his life, saying, we have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim this message of eternal life. Now go back to Acts 4. They're saying the same thing, that we can't help but speak and preach of this Jesus, this person who you've rejected. So verse 21, how would they respond to the faithfulness of Peter and John? Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. They'd threatened them, they'd made their threats, but this man had been healed right in front of them. So they let them go. Why? Because the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was done was more than 40 years old. They couldn't help this sign that had been done in front of them. This man was over 40 years old. He'd been lame his entire life. And yet he was healed in front of all of them. We see in this passage that Peter and John were faithful to the gospel. And this time they didn't face severe persecution. They weren't killed. They weren't beaten. Eventually that would happen to them. But this time they're let go. And it works out pretty well for them. That's not always what we're going to see happen with persecution and acts. This passage signals for us the first real act of opposition to the gospel message. Next week I want us to see what does it look like for the church to be persecuted. How does the church respond to persecution? This morning as we close though, I want us to think about how do we deal with civil authority? How do we deal with civil authority as believers? First of all, respect and obey authority as often as you are able. Turn to Romans 13. Respect and obey authority as often as you are able. Paul says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those who exist that have been instituted by God. This might be a strange thing for us to think about in the face of opposition. But the Bible, it's clear throughout all of scripture that authority comes from God. And as long as you are able, you should obey authority like you are obeying God. Now, we're not always going to be able to do that. But Peter and John were very respectful and obedient to authority as much as they were able. Secondly, defend the gospel despite what authority might say. Turn to Romans 1. Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. We should obey, we should respect authority, but when authority starts interfering with the gospel, then we politely defend the gospel, even in the face of authority. Now, how much of that do we see today, where we must say we would rather obey God rather than men? How much of that do we feel today in America? That's an interesting question for us to think about, but we may have to make more decisions like that, even in the future, as this country drifts further and further from God. Respect and obey authority as often as you're able. Defend the gospel despite what authority might say. And finally, explain the gospel when you are questioned. When that authority questions you and asks, in whose name are you preaching this? How are you doing this? Take those opportunities and share the gospel with that authority. We see this over and over again in the book of Acts. Peter shares the gospel when on trial. Paul, the last few chapters of Acts, is really all Paul sharing the gospel with others. Sharing the gospel with his authority. There might be harder days that we have to face in America as Christians. It doesn't mean we don't respect our authority. But there may be days where we have to say, no, we are going to defend and stand for the gospel despite what government might say. But through it all, we must go back to what we said at the beginning. That we should remain faithful to the gospel in the face of opposition. If you think about Peter, the one who's giving this defense, he was faithful till the end. And think about how he died. He was crucified upside down, but just like Jesus. I don't know if that day will ever come for us, if any of us will ever have to give our lives for the gospel. But in a few weeks, we'll read of the early church. And you know what they say? They were glad because they were counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. So as you face opposition to the gospel, consider it a joy, a privilege, that God considers us worthy enough to suffer for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the blessed hope that we have in Christ. God, as we now reflect on your son and his sacrifice for us on the cross in communion, God, may you work in our hearts and lives. Help us to see sin, selfishness, pride, and help us to be thankful for what your son has done for us. In Christ's name, amen.